0: Our scripture today comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold, He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something youthful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness Rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. This is the word of our Lord.
1: Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Welcome to Grace uh, Community Church. We're so glad uh, you are here with us Uh, this morning. We are in the sermon series called Habits. Uh, And we get these habits uh, from the book, uh, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People uh, by Stephen Covey. If you've not read this book or if you've not heard of this book, then I suggest you, uh, you get it and read it because it is really, really good. And the habit that we are going to be discussing this morning is think, win, win. Think, win, win. Now, some of you are probably sitting here thinking, man, that's a great business model. And you know what? You'd be right. But may, maybe not for the reason you think. You see, our culture is actually not a think-win-win win culture. You see, we are too competitive. Actually, Covey explains in his book uh, other mindsets that uh, our culture uh, is more ingrained with. And so you have win-win, you have win-lose, you have lose-win, and then you have lose-lose. So uh, win-lose is a very competitive mindset. It's the thought that Uh, I'm going to win, and whatever interaction we have, I'm going to win, you are going to lose. Then you have lose-win mentality. And that's the mindset that uh, you're going to win in this uh, interaction, and I am going to lose. And then you have uh, the lose-lose mindset, which is we're both going to lose. So, let me give you some examples of these. So, win-lose mindset is a very competitive one, and it's like sports. Alright, so we have football going on today. Uh, Falcons are playing the Packers, and I'm a Falcons fan, so uh, go Falcons. Uh, But when they're out there on the field, the Falcons are out there playing, and they are trying to win, and they want the other team to do what? Lose. Yes, they want the other team to lose. So the Falcons or the Packers are going to try and win at all costs. Then you have the lose-win mindset. The lose-win mindset is what most married men go through. Okay, so last... Last Sunday, after church, we went to Jerry and Wendy's house for lunch and we got rid of a dresser. And they put it on the side of the road, so they wanted someone to just, to just come by and pick it up. But we were sitting out on the front porch, and the more Bethany looked at that dresser, the more she wanted that dresser. So she told me, she said, Al Michael, I really want that dresser. I said, Bethany, we don't have any place to put it. We have no room, nor do we need another dresser. So we ended up taking the dresser home. And to me, that's lose, let's that's, that's lose win right there. And some of you wives are probably thinking, no, that's win-win because she got what she wanted and she's happy, so you should be happy, right? Well, no. Okay. So, uh, but then you have lose-lose. Lose-lose is the mindset that if I'm going down, you're going down with me. It's like the scene in the end of a movie when the bad guy is hanging off a cliff with one hand and the good guy reaches down his arm and says, grab my hand. But instead of grabbing the hand, he grabs for his gun to shoot the good guy. He's saying, if I'm going to go down, you're going to go down with me. That is lose, lose. And so today, as I said, we are going to be talking about think, win, win. So Stephen Covey defines uh, win, win, and this is what it says. Win-win sees life as a cooperative arena, not a competitive one. Win-win is a frame of mind and heart that constantly seeks mutual benefit in all human interactions. Win-win means agreements or solutions are mutually beneficial and satisfying. It's the mindset that we both win in this situation, in this transaction. Whatever this is, we are both going to come out on top. And this is a foreign topic Because we are so competitive by nature, aren't we? We are so, so competitive. And you're probably thinking, Alan, Michael, competition really isn't that bad. No, competition in itself is not bad. What we bring to the competition is what's bad. We bring selfishness. We bring deceit. And any any and every other sinful desires we have, we bring to competition, and that is what makes it bad. You see, any other mindset besides win-win brings disunity. Every other mindset besides win-win brings disunity. And so think win-win think in the biblical context. We see it as Christian unity. That's how we see it. And so our main idea this morning uh, that I want you to take home today is kindness to one another brings unity. Very simple main idea, but kindness to one another brings Unity And and, uh, as Margaret read for you, we're going to be in Ephesians, uh, and we're going to be specifically in chapter 4. And I want to give you a quick history lesson of Ephesus. Ephesus uh, was a very central location for Paul's missionary journeys, and that's because of where it was located. He was on the Mediterranean Sea, and it was a port city for all of these other cities that were around. So across the Mediterranean Sea, you had Corinth and Athens... And then to the right, you had Philippi, and then to the left and down a little bit, you had Antioch, you had Jerusalem, you had Caesarea, and then behind, uh, across the way behind Corinth, you had uh, Rome. So like all of these cities were surrounding Ephesus. It was like the central location. And so so many people were coming in and out, in and out. And so that was a prime place to begin spreading Christianity because it was going to reach so many people. But one of the problems uh, with this was that they had the temple of Artemis. Artemis was uh, the goddess of fertility who they worshipped in Ephesus. And, 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 so, and because of this, because of the goddess of, the goddess of Artemis, Paul, in his book to the Ephesians, spends two whole chapters preaching the gospel. The first two chapters are nothing but pure gospel. So if you're like, man, I really just want to, you know, go out and preach the gospel to people and I want to tell them about Jesus. Well, just read them the first two chapters of Ephesians and they'll get it. I promise. Cause he clearly explains it for them. And he does that because he wants to remind them what Jesus has done for them in the midst of uh, this place where they worship another God. So chapters one and two are pure gospel. And then in Ephesians, you get to chapter three and Paul reveals to the Ephesians, the mystery of the gospel and that mystery is that no longer is, is salvation only for Jews, but it's now also for Gentiles. And to that we all say, Amen. Because for so long it was only it was, it was the Jewish people. They were the chosen ones. But because of Christ, that's, that's no longer the case. It's now for everybody. And along those lines, since we are all now heirs of Christ, comes chapter 4. Since we are all heirs, knowing that the Jewish people... We're the ones for so long, we're the only ones who receive salvation. Now the Gentiles are invited to be a part of that. There can still be some friction there. So chapter 4 is all about unity. Since we are all heirs of Christ, we are all here to spread the gospel together. We have to have unity. And so the first 16 chapters of of, uh, chapter 4, first 16 verses of chapter 4, excuse me, are him talking about a broad example of what unity is. And then verses 17 through 32 are practical application. Strict commands by Paul. This is what unity looks like. Verses 17 through uh, 24 are putting off the old self. He goes into great detail of what that looks like, putting off the new self. And then where we're going to be, verses 25 through 32, is the other side of the coin. When you put off the old self, you have to then put on the new self. And so that is where we are This is a very practical sermon. It's not going to be deeply theological. It is just strict commands by Paul that we're going to be in, but it's, 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 it's very practical for our day to day life because our, our current actions are proof of our faith. John MacArthur says this, the only reliable evidence of a person's being saved is not a past experience of receiving Christ, but a present life that reflects Christ. And so Paul gives us four imperatives that we'll be in. The first imperative is to choose truth over lying. Choose truth over lying. Verse 25, he says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So he says here to put away falsehood. The term put away literally means to, to cast out. To completely get rid of to throw it out, we would use the term exile. And so when you exile something, you get rid of it, does it ever come back? No, it never comes back. Not for any reason, is it allowed back? And that's the same term he's using here. I want you to completely put away falsehood. I want you to cast it out. And for no reason whatsoever, is it allowed to come back? Falsehood is gone. And since falsehood is gone, what has to come in then? Truth. Truth. Put off the old self. Put on the new self. And so he urges them to speak truth. He starts with a negative prohibition here and follows with a positive command. And that is because holiness is not just about saying no to sin, but also about saying yes to God. See, putting off requires putting on. When you come home after a long day at work, you you take off your your old dirty clothes and then you put on what? New clean clothes, right? You wouldn't just keep on your dirty clothes. That would be nasty, right? No, you you put on new clothes, right? And that's exactly what this is saying. You take off, so you have to put on. So why speak truth? It's not just a simple, because Jesus told me to, right? Because Jesus said so. Actually, Paul says in here, we are to speak truth because we are members one of another. We are members. The word members is used 34 times in Scripture, and every single time it refers to the body. Every single time. We are members of one another. So, pretty simple illustration for this. Your eyes see what's in front of you, correct? So, let's say this morning you got up and you went to go iron your clothes. You went to iron your shirt. As soon as you got done, obviously the iron would still be hot. But your eyes tell your hand, the iron's not hot anymore. So your hand reaches for the iron. What's going to happen? You're going to get burned, right? Your eyes lied to the hand, therefore resulting in pain to the body. Not only is the hand hurting, which obviously it would be, but your whole body is affected by this. Now your arm has to act different because you can't just accidentally hit your hand against certain things, so you probably hold it close to your chest. The rest of your body will have to make up for what your hand now cannot do because of one lie that your eyes told. See, falsehood hurts the body. Falsehood stifles unity. Truth strengthens unity. Every Monday, every Monday morning, we have staff meeting, and we talk about we talk about what happened at church the day before. We talk about what's going to happen this upcoming week at church. We talk about what our roles are through this week as far as pastoral care. But before we get to all that, we have a time of accountability where we ask each other questions: How is your walk with the Lord? How is your prayer? How's your prayer life? How's your your time in the word? How's your time with your, your family? Now, if I were to sit in there every single week and I were to lie to these men, how would they ever know what I struggle with? How would they ever be able to come alongside me and walk with me if I constantly lie? And to be someone who struggles with pride, I can see see the the justification, if you will, to to lie, to make myself seem like I'm doing better than I am, but I'm not helping anything. Falsehood stifles unity. Truth strengthens unity. We can't live in unity unless we live in truth. We are to speak the truth all the time, in every situation, to every person that we encounter. Especially to believers, because... We are in the body of Christ together, and we must have unity. So the first, uh, the first imperative that Paul gives us is to choose truth over lying. And then the second one is to choose anger and move on. Choose anger and move on. Verses 26 and 27, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil So be angry. Like, raise your hand if you can master that one, if Paul just stopped right there. There we go. We got a couple. Here we go. Yep, that's the easy part, right? I can be angry. Unfortunately, Paul doesn't stop there. He told you to be angry, but do not sin. See, anger is a a very natural response for a human being. And many people believe that the anger itself is the sin, but that's not the case, actually. See, a good example of this would be like if you're at a middle school basketball game, say your son or your daughter, uh, they're playing in this game and, and the game, they're playing their rival. All right, So it's an intense game. It's a very close game, close to the end. And all of a sudden the referee makes a bad call. And it bodes well for the other team. It bodes poorly for your team. Obviously, you're going to be mad. Your team got outed and it wasn't their fault. The other team got rewarded. That's unfair. The anger or the frustration you feel in that moment is not the sin. It's when you say something about the ref's mama afterward, that is the sin. Do you see the difference there? <laughs> it's what you do with that anger. It's not the anger itself. Actually, being treated unfairly is what's called injustice. And to be angry at that, to be angry at that is okay. That's called righteous anger. But it's what you do with that anger that makes it sinful. The next part says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. This is a, this is an old Greek proverb actually. So the sunset was a time range for things. So instead of saying, okay, so this paper is due Thursday at 6 PM, you would say this is due by Thursday at sunset. That's what you would would say. And so to, to not let the sun go down your anger is to not go to sleep. It's to not not quickly resolve your anger. That's what this is talking about. So uh, Plutarch actually said that the Pythagoreans, back when they would like have, you know, tension between each other, they would actually hold hands and embrace each other before the sunset occurred. Like that would be hard, right? To hold hands and embrace each other. So Shane and Nikki Holland are sitting right down here. And I have permission to use this, by the way. So, uh, when Ryan and Riley, their two kids, when they get into some kind of conflict or fight with each other, uh, Shane and Nikki make them stand nose to nose until they finally just start hysterically laughing. That's That's just torture. Nikki, that's just torture. My sister and I like to punch each other if we, that ever happened. But, uh, but I asked her if i could use this and she said, yeah. And then she said, what, what we do now since they're older is we make them sing You Got a Friend in Me from Toy Story. <laughs> I'm like, goodness gracious. You know, as, as weird and how hard that would be for me, it's, it's so effective because Ryan and Raleigh have to resolve their anger, resolve their issues quickly and effectively so that bitterness and resentment don't set in. They have to get along. Regardless, reconcile quickly. And if not, if you don't, you leave opportunity for the devil. That's what this passage says. Now, some of you are probably sitting here and you heard Jerry preach last week. And, well, Jerry said that if we are in Christ, then, then the devil has no power over us. And you're exactly right. Matter of fact, the word sealed in this passage, later on here in this passage and in chapter 1 Is referring to the Holy Spirit sealing us. And that that Greek word actually means protection from Satan. So when you are in Christ and you have the Holy Spirit, Satan has no power over you. But here's the thing. Satan does not produce the anger. We produce the anger. And then he can take that, if it's not resolved, and he can twist it. And he can manipulate that situation to cause bitterness, hatred, resentment toward everyone else, causing disunity. We are to manage our anger quickly and properly. Christians actually need to feel anger. As I said earlier, if we are indifferent to injustice, then evil will prevail. In 1973, that was the year that the Supreme Court decided that abortion should be legalized across the United States. Uh, CNN uh, says that from 1973 to 2003, over 300 attacks of extreme violence, including arson, bombings, Murders and butyric acid occurred. That's bad. Being angry at the idea of abortion is not the sin. It's what you do with that anger that makes it sinful. Anger left unchecked, unreconciled, leads to bitterness and resentment. And this is where Satan uses handiwork. Some of you sitting there and maybe you've got a quarrel with someone in this room that's unresolved, unchecked. What Satan can do is he can twist that. He can cause disunity between you and that other person. Resolve it. Some of you sitting here and, and, and you have anger towards yourself. You haven't forgiven yourself over something that occurred 5, 10, 20 years ago, he can use that too, to twist it, manipulate it, present yourself bitterness, reconcile it. Kindness to one another brings unity. The third imperative uh, that Paul uh, gives us is to choose work over Stealing. Choose work over stealing. So verse 28 says this. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You see, he's referring here to the old way of life, those who steal. Paul is telling us who received Christ at this time. It was thieves. You see, before there was any kind of welfare system or or government assistance, when, when someone back then lost their job or they took a break, then they were forced to steal to survive. So Paul is saying here, don't, don't steal any longer. So let me speak quickly to, to the college student in the room. All right, so I know college is a tough time financially. I get it. It's difficult. I think I spent eight months at Montreat with 73 cents in my bank account. I get it. It's hard. But stealing is never, never an option. It could be food from the cafeteria, food from your friend's dorm, money from your parents' wallet, a pencil from a, a classmate. If it's not yours, it's not yours. Stealing is never an option. To the, to the unemployed in the room, I get it. Times are tough. Jobs are few and far between, but stealing is never an option. If you are in Christ, then you have put off the old self. You have put on the new self and stealing is never ever an option in Matthew chapter 6 Jesus is uh, the sermon on the mount and he's preaching and this section is do not be anxious and this is what it says therefore i tell you do not be anxious about your life what you will eat what you will drink nor about your body or what you will put on is not life more important than food and the body more than clothing look at the birds of the air they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them I lost my page Are you not more value than they? So he's saying here, the birds, they don't work. They don't get wages. But yet they have food every day. And you, do you not know that God knows what's going on? Do you not know that that he knows that your income isn't getting it done? Listen, he'll provide. He promises. He promises to provide even in the hardest of times. The next part, doing, doing, doing work with his own hands. Isn't that great? Like when you, when you work on something for so long and it's finished and you see the accomplishment, you see the completed work at the end, you're just like, oh man, that was worth it. Like that's such an awesome thing. So we had life group, college life group, uh, every Wednesday night at our house and this one particular night, we broke up. Uh, girls stayed in the living room. Boys went into the uh, dining room area. And we, we had great conversation. And the guys, we, we came back into the living room. And I thought that you know the girls would still be in deep, deep conversation. And I was wrong. When I walked in there, Netflix was on. And it was Bob Ross. Okay, So if you don't know who Bob Ross is, Bob Ross is an extremely good painter. And he had a show on PBS from like... Like 1990 to 1994, something along those lines. Well, he's just funny. One of my favorite lines from Bob Ross is he said that trees cover a multitude of sins. I just find that to be one of the funniest phrases of all time. But the thing is, is like when you watch Bob Ross in this video, he paints this thing in 30 minutes. And he's done. And at the beginning, you see this blank canvas. And then 30 minutes later, it's this masterpiece. Like... That's crazy how good he is. But you see it, and you look after you're like, man, like that work is completed. You know, he he always takes a step back and goes, yep, I think we got to finish painting. But man, like in that that sense of accomplishment, that sense of of completing something, it's so it's so amazing. And for for us, it could be mowing our yard, it could be Chris back here does hair. It could be after you finish a haircut, right? It could be it could be your paycheck at the end of the week. Man, it's just. I worked hard this week. I got it. See, we're supposed to share these things that we accomplish. Our time, our food, money, whatever that is, with those in need. That's what this passage is saying. There will be people who cross your path. Now, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a, a seminary professor and a theologian in the 30s and 40s, um, he was executed uh, because he resisted Hitler. He actually helped plot Uh, to kill Hitler at one point and he was caught and he was murdered. But uh, he says this in his book, Life Together. We must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. God will be constantly crossing our paths and canceling our plans by sending us people with claims and petitions. We may pass by them preoccupied with our more important tasks. As the priest passed by the man who had fallen into thieves, perhaps reading the Bible. When we do that, we pass by the visible sign of the cross, raised athwart our path to show us that not our way, but God's way must be done. There will be people who cross your path who are in need. We got a letter uh, this past Christmas. We sent uh, Christmas cards to uh, people who were in prison. And the church got a thank you card back. And I want to read it to you guys. Pastor and membership. Hello, my name is Bruce. I am an inmate at the Marion Correctional Institute, and I wanted to let you know that I was so very grateful to your church and for the gift and for your love for us. I know it took a bunch of people to pull this off. I wish I could tell you all thank you and God bless you. In Matthew 25, 35-36, we are told to remember the ones who have less. Does a heart good to see a church who wants, who doesn't forget the prison that they are holding? I would like to wish you all a blessed holiday season. Thank you for remembering the reason for the season. May God richly bless you, Bruce. That's sharing with those who are in need. That's proof. The final imperative that Paul gives us is to... Choose encouragement over tearing down. Choose encouragement over tearing down. Verse 29 says this, Look, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. The word corrupt in the Greek means bad, putrid, and worthless. Other places in Scripture, the same Greek word is used to describe a rotten fruit. In terms of community, one of the biggest dangers is the tongue. The tongue is an extremely difficult thing to control. Raise your hand if you can attest to that. There we go. (laughs) Yes, it is. And James even says that, in the book of James, he even says that humans have been able to tame every single animal there is on earth, but there's one thing we can't tame, and that's the tongue. And you might say, well, Michael... I can tame my tongue because I can say whatever I want. That's that's not how that works, guys. I want you to know that. So, have you ever said something and the moment it left your mouth, you immediately regretted saying it? Yes. And see, this this command actually fits well with the first two commands: to speak truth and to be angry. Because oftentimes, it's our anger that lashes our tongue out. It's our anger that controls our tongue. And James says the tongue is like a fire, just destroying everything in its path. And see, he's, he's referring here to the, to the old way of living. And see, we're talking here about the new life is for, is for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Our goal, the goal of our tongue is to encourage. That should be the goal of our tongue. Unity requires encouragement of believers. The word building up in this passage also means spiritual growth. Our tongue and counsel should be best fit for helping someone grow in their walk with the Lord. Think about that the next time your kid is pitching a fit in the grocery store. Think about that the next time your spouse calls you lazy because you didn't help with the dishes. Our tongue and counsel should be best fit for helping someone grow in their walk with the Lord. And you may be thinking, this is so moralistic. We're saved because of our ability to obey these commands. Well, no. We put on the new self because of Christ's sacrifice for us. Now I'm going to finish out this, uh, these verses here. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ... Forgave you. I want to read that last verse one more time. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. As God in who? Christ. You see, that is the one who makes all this possible, that is the one who, who, who transforms us into a new creation. You speak. I do not speak truth, control my anger, stop stealing and encourage other believers because I think it will bring me salvation. No, I do these things because it is how Christ treats me. He is the one who spoke truth into me when I was deceiving myself. He is the one who should have been angry at me, but was angry at my sin and did something about it. He was the one that before I had what I needed, he gave me what I needed. He is the one who who could have called me bad, awful names like sinner, lame, but instead he called me son, called me blessed. Why do I put on the new self? Because, Because I want to mirror him. If we are sitting in here and we have accepted him, then we should want to mirror him. And if you're sitting in here and you haven't accepted Christ, then let me tell you about Jesus. He loved you so much that he took a punishment that you and I both deserved. I deserve death. I deserve condemnation, but man, God loved me so much, as big as he is. And it's so loving as he is, sent his son, Jesus, to die for me. A man who didn't struggle with sin like I do. And he took that death for you and me. Because he loves you. And he wants to spend an eternity in heaven with you. And if you're if you're sitting here and you want to know more, then then after the service is over, Adrian and myself will be up here close to the front. Feel free to come talk to us. I'm going to close this with this final Bonhoeffer quote. Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. If we are to be kind to one another, if we are to forgive each other, if we are to live in unity, then it has to be in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for how amazing you are. God, you are such a great God and you love us so much. Father, help us to be able to, to continue to put on the new self. To live the way that you want us to live. To put away all these, all these former sins that are our old way of living. And to put on the new ones that, you, that you've bestowed upon us. Because you loved us. Father, help us to mirror you. So that we can have unity with one another. We love you so much. It's in your name I pray. Amen.